Hello, welcome to episode 40 of Scuttlebutt, a Marine Corps Association podcast. Uh, I want to apologize for the unplanned week off we had last week. There's been a lot going on. Vic is obviously out of town. There's been a few vacations. And did you know that we now have basically a summer holiday season now between Memorial Day, Juneteenth, and the upcoming 4th of July? There's a lot going on, so... Between all that and some COVID that propped up, uh, we had to take the week off last week. But this week, we've got Nick Colt, who is the very embodiment of putting your body on the line for service to your fellow man. It's a great conversation. I think you're going to love it. Uh, it's a little bit longer this week, so uh, enjoy. Welcome to another awesome episode of Scuttlebutt. I'm Vic. I'm here in uh, beautiful uh, Southern California, San Clemente, California, just a few miles uh, north of the uh, North Gate at uh, Camp Pendleton in beautiful San Clemente. And I'm here. I'm so honored and humbled uh, to be here with Nick Colt. Uh, He's a uh, Long Beach fire captain at Long Beach Fire Department. Former Marine, former combat engineer, uh, Nick, man, thank you so much for welcoming me into your home and having me here today. Absolutely. Thank you for coming down. It's, I mean, super convenient for you to come down, but really appreciate you making the time. Dude, this is great. And like I was telling you when I got here, like any excuse I can come up with to come to San Clemente, um, I'm going to jump all over, man. Yeah. So, um, and then as many of the listeners know, for those who haven't tuned in before, I am from San Clemente. Uh, so this is a truly a, a wonderful homecoming and, and such a great uh, opportunity to sit here in your beautiful home, just a few miles, you know, got even a mile from the beach even. Yeah, but, yeah. Uh, you know, you got surfboards in the back, you got wetsuits uh, in the bathroom, and it just it really brings you back. Uh, it's very different than my life in uh, Northern Virginia. So I just got to ask me, like, what's it like being a former Marine living in such a Marine sort of centric town like San yeah. Clemente? Well, it's fun. I mean, um, so I, I initially bought our house with a roommate of mine uh, who was also a uh, Marine. He's a 46 pilot. This actual home here? This home. Yeah, okay. And uh, he was really adamant about buying a place. I, I had my heart in my throat the whole time and didn't necessarily think it was a good idea. Uh, <laughs> yeah, so yeah. Here we are almost 20 years later. It's like, yeah, it's a pretty good idea, but... Um, yeah, it's, it's pretty funny. Sort of the, we bought this place and I could literally run to work in the morning. Yeah. Door to door, uh, from here to first CB was like, yeah. Cause you're out of uh, Mateo. Yeah, right? yeah. 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 It's like a three mile jog. You know? Yeah. And if I was feeling lazy, you know, just have someone drop me off at, at the back gate or whatever, yeah. you know, like just walk a mile or yeah. whatever. But, uh, now I'm driving. Yeah. You know, like 50 miles to work every day. So that, that part didn't necessarily work out, but yeah, yeah, go the opposite direction. Yeah, now. yeah. But San Clemente, as you know, it's it, and welcome home, by the way. Thank you, uh, thank you. It is a, a really cool little intersection of like where the Marine Corps sort of meets like this hub of of the surf community, not just um, here in Southern California, but really like nationally and in a lot of ways international. Um, along with this crazy mix of like the very few locals who have held on. And then, as you know, like, so few people in Southern California are actually from Southern Yeah, California. yeah, exactly. So you got all the transplants, too. And it's, it's just, like, a really neat um, but small um, community of folks who, who kind of come from um, all walks and have sort of seemed to, like, make it work and, and mesh in, in, a, in a location that's 
pretty unique and pretty cool. Dude, yeah, and it's so it's, it's so great to be back, not just in San Clemente, but here specifically, because you're in one of the few areas that has sort of survived the rapid development and the quote-unquote progress yeah. of the real estate market, of, uh, you know, the bigger, better home, yeah. the overdevelopment. So you guys are pretty well insulated here. I mean, just driving up, I mean, a close friend of ours, uh, you know, grew up just a few blocks from here. And I mean, th- that neighborhood looks exactly the same as yeah. when I was in third grade going to Concordia, which is, you know, as you know, just over the freeway. Right. I mean, all of the state parks, it looks the same. So, I mean, this is a really, this is really a great place. I don't know yeah. what you feel sort of the same. No, we love, so it's, yeah. This it little, has the character, right? But you're right. It's insulated. It has a ton of character. I think at the time, so probably when you were growing up here, this was like the rough part of town. Dude, tell me about it. Yeah. funny to think about it now because it's like all these homes are like so nice and I don't the word gentrification is probably not the correct term, but now it's so many like just um, clusters of small families and, and people who love to surf. Obviously, the proximity to the beach is like I think what really drives yeah, yeah. a lot of people to want to live here. But it, like when I when we bought the place, I wasn't like, oh yeah, great schools, you know, yeah, like, yeah, yeah, a bunch of kids from my my Which kids, early twenties, like right? a single marine, <laughs> yeah. like, you know, drinking beer on the weekends and and you know doing my marine corps thing, like in the field. Three weeks out of the month, if yeah, you kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. So, well, even you, you were saying uh, when we met earlier, like when you guys were first looking at the home, didn't your neighbors come out with like, they did. yeah, like here's some beers, like decorator, yeah, yeah, like the, yeah. the frosted mugs in the freezer, and like, yeah, welcome to the neighborhood, kind of thing. Like, yeah, that's so funny. Trying to promote us to to move into the neighborhood. That's so cool. Yeah, it's yeah, that's awesome. Well, so. I guess then let's let's backtrack all the way then. So obviously we talked about you being a uh, you know combat engineer, uh, did your West Coast tour here at Mateo, but you're from Wisconsin. I am. Yeah, so yeah. that's quite a journey. Yeah, the land of cheddar and sausage and beers. Yeah, and cold, cold yeah, weather. Cold, cold weather, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yep. Um, so, uh, yeah, talk us through some of that. So you don't come from a, a military family, right? No, I mean, so um, both my grandfathers um, served uh, kind of during World War II, and I, I didn't necessarily grow up hearing a lot of stories about it. I think my, my maternal grandfather was so young that he was really kind of, he was only, he made it as far as England. And I think the war kind of okay. uh, yeah, met its 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 end um, when he arrived there. So he was pretty young as far as um, the, the World War II vets were concerned. And then my other grandfather just frankly never talked about his service mm-hmm. in the Pacific. And so I, I, I kind of knew in the back of my mind that that element of, of military service existed in my family, but it was never... There weren't any shadow boxes on the wall. It yeah. wasn't like I was going outside to to salute the flag. You're right, right, right. You guys were doing morning colors no, nothing like in the that. yard. Yeah, nothing like that. So, okay. Yeah, my dad was literally a beer salesman, and my mom was a nurse. Two, um, which are you know two of the greatest. Oh, great, yeah, great public services <laughs> yeah, in and of right. themselves, right? Um, but everybody yeah, serves. That's right, but but not a lot of exposure to the military when I was a kid. So what? So you end up at Naval Academy. How? What was that trend? What was that path like? Like yeah, I, well, so growing up, like sports was was my life, and I really, I mean. To the extent that, um, you know, my dad sat me down at one point and was like, yeah, you might want to get a job and independently have access to some money. But he's like, we'll we'll scrape for whatever money that that you really need to do some of the personal stuff you want to do. But your job is to, you know, enjoy school, 
play sports, get decent grades, and, and that's it. Yeah. And I, I grew up in like a really, I hate to say it, but almost like a, a very like nice, comfortable, comfortable, like very little like yeah childhood trauma or anything like that. You know, there's no like dramatic origin story. Yeah. Um, we it's just like lower middle class America of just like, yeah, I love playing sports. So, so I, I, sorry, I kind of got off track. No, there, it's but, all good. Yeah. Um, there was a guy that I really looked up to that I, I played um, football with and, and um, was on the track team with. He's a couple years older than me. And uh, he sort of planted the seed of, of an idea of the Naval Academy in my head. He had gone out to a program that they have called Summer Seminar, which is like a week-long sort of intro course that you can do almost like a summer camp yeah, yeah, for yeah. prospective students. And uh, he went out there and came back and um, was, was talking to me about it. I'm like, man, that sounds awesome. And frankly, I, I like I'd, I'd probably be inventing something if I told you why I thought it was so awesome at the time. Yeah. But it just sounded like, you know, for me and my my very young brain, it sounded like, oh, this is like a, a, a top of the line engineering school, which I've always wanted to do engineering. This is an opportunity to serve your country, which at the time and, and still to this day sounded like something that, that seemed like very noble, mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. you know, just kind of off the top of my head. And this is um, late 90s, right? So this is yeah. the Clinton era. This, yeah, like mid-90s. Yeah. Yep. Were, I graduated high school in 96, so this is probably like 94 okay. time frame. Yeah. Um, and then also, yeah, like the opportunity to go and, and continue like playing sports. So yeah. um, the Naval Academy had huge appeal um, for like a broad spectrum. Of reasons, and then my dad and I took a recruiting trip, um, you know, with the football team out there, and it was one of those days where, if you've never been to Annapolis, it's like a ton of history, cobblestone Dude, streets, it's gorgeous, right on the water. Yeah, you know, they're like sailboats scudding across the bay with rays of sunlight shining. Down yeah, yeah, like, yeah. Your, your jaw drops as yeah, like a high school kid from Wisconsin that's barely seen the ocean. It's like. Okay. Yeah, yeah. I'd be talking to this. You know? yeah, yeah, yeah. So then you um you arrive, you're a plebe, mm-hmm. um, and you're on scholarship. Is that right? No. So yeah. you know they don't really have. I guess a, that's right. A scholarship yeah. program, and and that's the nice thing uh, about it is that like I think my parents paid like two grand. For yeah, the scholarship is your fees. So your payback tour that you yeah, have yeah, to yeah. do when you finish, yeah. right? But you're invited to come on for the football team. Is that right at the time? Yeah, and <laughs> I got to preface this by saying like I was a pretty average football player on a horrible high school football team. <laughs> um, we were we were like the bad news bears. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Football. We didn't win a single game in the four years that I played high school football, um, which is... A lot of opportunities to learn. A lot of resilience building, right? Um, But, uh, yeah, so it's like uh, I I saw an opportunity to to continue my athletic career and and, um, essentially, like, walked on to the football team kind of deal. And I I never suited up for a varsity football game. Mm -hmm. I played that, that first year. But to me, it was like, it was an opportunity to continue... I mean that's D one. That's big time. That's yeah. a, that's a program. Like it is. It's a full on. It, yeah. It's a program. It is a business, and uh, um, it, it's impressive. Yeah, I mean that's it, you know I've, you know having you know played a little bit of ball in my time too. It's like um, if you start looking at the attrition factor, yep. you know every practically every high school in America has a football team and every one of those teams is usually maxed out with just as many jerseys as they can put bodies in. Yep. So you're talking about, you know, potentially hundreds of thousands of high school 
football players. And then you get to D1, and there's just you know, maybe a 1,000. Right. So, I mean, that attrition factor is big time. So, I mean, to even have that level of exposure is something very, very unique. No, it was really cool. And my jersey number might as well have been like 118. <laughs> you know, but... Yeah. Uh, it, it, it was, like, is your number pi? Like, what yeah. is that on <laughs> But it was a very unique exposure to, like, hey, this isn't about just, like, not only just having fun and developing yourself as an athlete anymore, but it's truly a business. Yeah, I mean, this is a, it's, like what annually you guys play Notre Dame. Yep. I mean, you're in there with well, the Army Navy Army game, Navy game, massive, right? Even just as as a member of the student body, and talk about whatever sports rivalry you want to, but I don't think anything compares to it. it the The level of intensity, yeah, is just above and beyond anything else I think that you could imagine. Um, but also super fun. Yeah, um, mixed in with all that, and, and I made it through spring ball, um, which I, I felt like was a huge accomplishment. Um, I I played tight end in high school. They didn't have a tight end in the offense at the time, so they're like, "Yeah, you're too slow to be a defensive end, so we're going to make you an offensive tackle." I mean, like I'm yeah. 200 pounds soaking wet coming out of yeah, the yeah, summer. Yeah. It's like, okay, so your goal weight is 280, and uh, we're going to need you to, to eat to the point that you're nauseous. And <laughs> yeah, that's and right. Wake up at midnight and eat a peanut butter and jelly sandwich and uh, all this stuff, and it, it just didn't really like suit the type of athleticism that that I was used to. Yeah. Um, you know, the guy that was ahead of me on the depth chart ended up, um, you know, uh, winning a couple Super Bowl championships and, and being an all-pro offensive yeah. tackle. Yeah, so that's a, that's a tough one to bring it into. Yeah. And Panthers, and it's, yeah, it's like, okay. Uh, and it's not like he was a senior year or a freshman, right? Like, weren't you guys just like... Who's a year older? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so. yeah. yeah, so I saw the, the handwriting on the wall. And yeah. And so then you, you moved over, though, into something else. I transitioned to, to rugby, yeah. um, which was phenomenal and uh, loved everything about it still to this day. Um, and and I, I've kind of like, for being as involved in, in childhood sports as I was, I, I've sort of migrated away from, like, I, don't, I don't really go to any baseball games. I don't watch a whole lot of sports on TV, but I, I still follow um, rugby scores and occasionally like tune in for a tournament or something like that. Yeah, there's so, a pretty um, decent rugby squad just down the street, right? Yeah, San Diego, it's, it's right? Developing. It's developing, um, in, you know, specifically in California, but really throughout the United States. Yeah, more than it was certainly when I was a kid. Yeah, I, I'll tell you, um, when I was in Afghanistan, uh, where we were at in Marja, we had a bunch of like. Kiwis and Brits and stuff were sort of like this multinational thing yeah. at the government center. And, uh, man, it was during the World Cup. And, obviously, all blacks are all everything. It was yep. so great. But, yeah, I really got into sort of the zeitgeist of that rugby culture. It's a whole culture. It's so fun. Yeah. Man. It's so fun. Like, just even not really having much exposure to uh, rugby other than its linkages to American football. Yep. It still is so great to see and like that level of competitiveness yeah. and like how everyone was so encouraging even of their rivals and of the other squads. Yeah. Right? And that's the phenomenal part about rugby and truly like, so I left, I had never quit anything before in my life and I'd made it through spring ball and I was like, man, I'm really letting some people down here, like frankly myself and whoever else believes in me by not continuing on with, with football, but it, it, I just wasn't happy. Yeah, yeah. And I went to the rugby team and it was like immediate transition. I remember the first game we played was against this Canadian team that we played 
uh, annually. They're a really solid team from Ontario, and they came down, and it's like I, I'm not even of age to drink, but afterwards, it, these guys are going out to the bar, and, and the entire culture comes to the bar with you. And it was like, holy shit, this is awesome. Yeah, yeah. And, and it's it's like an entire thing. Not only did the the type of athleticism and, and sort of the the progression of the game as it you know it's it's like a complex environment. That's there are no timeouts. Yeah. There's no coaches on the field. Like you get ten minutes at halftime, and then you're back in the mix. Yeah. And that's it. Um, and, and so that stuff all suited me so much better. But then you incorporate the culture into it. And we subsequently traveled to some foreign countries and played. You know, played in Ireland and South Africa. Man, um, which those are those, those aren't teams to, to sneeze at. No, but you yeah. show up and you beat the hell out of each other for eighty minutes, and then you're instantly plugged into like the 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 like you said the zeitgeist, but like the inside of like the most intimate social scene, which is like the local pub. Like, hey, these are the best things to do in town. Hey, you have to meet this guy. And it is just such a cool way to interact with, with another culture that's, you know, I mean, frankly, it's it's an athletic event. Yeah. Um, and and it, it could just be that, but it's so much more. That's awesome. Yeah. And then, so that sort of, that level of camaraderie, that sort of tight-knit culture, that, you know, brotherhood of arms, if you will, yep. seems to have been very attractive to you. Is that... Then when you were at the Naval Academy, then you declared, hey, I want to go Marine. I want to go green side instead of blue side because it's it's selective at that level, right? It, it is. It is. And um, I think that was part of it um, subconsciously. Mm-hmm. A, a lot of my close friends and, and my, my core group of, of, of friends that I was tight with were, were rugby guys, almost two a person. It's yeah. not to say that I didn't have other friends, but... Um, we were just, that's just how tight it was. And almost to a man, they all went Marine Corps as well, um, which I'm sure influenced my selection in a sure. lot of ways. Um, but yeah, I think the concept of, of camaraderie and the concept of almost kind of like being in the suck. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You, you know, because yeah. rugby is that too. It's, yeah, you're drinking. It's trench warfare, man. Yeah, yeah you're, you're <laughs> yeah. in the suck for 80 minutes as well. And it's the, it's that, that shared sense of sacrifice and suffering that I think it was hard for me to maybe put my finger on at the time, but it was part of the, the real appeal. Yeah, it's great. And then for those uh, listeners who aren't aware, um, to declare yourself a Marine isn't just saying like, hey, I'll go. I mean, it's what, top 16%? Get selected. It's it, uh, not necessarily top sixteen no. um, because you know, like people have. You have to you have to rank all your choices. Everything from Navy SEALs to Supply Corps, right, and everything mm-hmm. in between. Um, and um, a lot of people are you know maybe not physically qualified for one or the other um, for whatever reason. At the time, they wouldn't let you fly if you had you know eyesight that was right, um, not within the division standards. And so. Um, you know, some fields were restricted to a lot of people, but if, if you're like the top performer, you know, they're taking to consideration conduct scores, your your grades, your athletic performance, and then they have, you know, they conduct interviews for each individual community. Um, you know, there's, there's um, PT evaluations for those individual communities. And so Marines was competitive. I, I don't know if it was the most competitive. I'd say probably like the the special warfare oh, right. uh, sure. selection right. was was maybe the most competitive just because far few number of spots and, and I think you know to a certain kind of person that's that's like hyper attractive as well sure um, but yeah Marine Corps ground was by far my number one 
um, choice out of the, the options that I have presented to me. And yeah, it, it, it becomes kind of competitive, but it's not to the point where you're like fighting other guys off or right, right. You know, there's no like one-upsmanship or anything like that. <laughs> right, right. You're like you're sabotaging people on their yeah, inspections yeah, yeah, and yeah. stuff. Yeah. yeah. Um, okay, so you finish up, you get a uh, engineering degree mm-hmm. out of the Able Academy. Yep. And Never then used you, it since. <laughs> right. Uh, and then you had... Uh, you know, just a few miles down the road, TBS. Right. And so let's talk about that. So much in the same way as Naval Academy, uh, exposure to all the various jobs within the Navy. Yeah. Now you're being exposed to all the various jobs within yep. the Marine Corps ground side. Yeah. And I think we talked before, you had some friends who were on flight contracts. You mentioned yeah. how yeah, 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 the yeah. difference in that sort of uh, culture, but then also that like, like perspective on what TBS was offering. Yeah. So, uh, and for those listeners who have been to TBS or, or know it, to know it is to like understand it and kind of love it. But um, the way they break it down, as you know, is they break it down with what they call the rule of thirds. And they like say there are 300 people graduating out of a TBS class and they'll break it into the top 100 performers, the middle 200, the, the middle 100, and then the, the bottom 100. And, um, you know, if you want to be, uh, you know, infantry officer, well, if you're number one, you get your first choice. And then number 100 gets the second choice. Yeah. And so they, they try and call quality it. Spread, quality maybe. spread. Yeah, yeah. Quality yeah. spread. Like I always say, quality man, spread. like for me, it was good to be the top of the bottom third. Yeah. <laughs> but like yeah. everything, yeah, I wish I could have been that top of the bottom third as well. It might have been a little bit easier on me. But it, like, so the only guarantee is if you have a flight contract, yeah. right? Then you don't have to worry about anything. You're not worried about impressing anybody. And so it's kind of funny. Like we, we all joined in, in Fox Company, which is the last to go. Mm-hmm. So there are very few Naval Academy guys. Most guys are coming, you know, from... The OCC guys, yeah, direct commission. Exactly. Yeah. And those guys are all like fresh head shaved down to the skin, like, yes, sir, no, sir. <laughs> and a bunch of us who... That, I went with a bunch of my rugby buddies who tried to time it so that we could go together. And we're kind of like longer hippie-ish looking hair <laughs> and like throwing each other into the mud like on the obstacle course and just like frankly just kind of like fucking off a little bit <laughs> yeah. um here and there without like jeopardizing our performance but all, all my buddies are like flight contracts and so they don't necessarily have to worry about their performance and i was looking at it and it's like man there's no as much as you try and game the game or work the system, like good luck trying to find your way to the top of the second third or the top of the bottom third. Because you don't know. No, and I, yeah, it's not really like my way, nor is it most people's way. I'm sure to go to, like to join the Marine Corps and then try and do something half-assed. So yeah, yeah. The intent was just like, well, kick as much ass as possible, wind up at at the top of that top third, and then go from there. And if your picks available. Yeah, uh, make it happen. And I, I wanted to be a combat engineer just based on my limited explosion. Explosion. <laughs> <laughs> nice, dude. I love that. How's, how's that, that is a new word. That's going. Yeah. That's Please going in the style yeah. guide for Please sure. Please don't ex- edit that out. I've never said explosion before <laughs> in my life. But uh, yeah, I thought explosives were cool. Um, but you know, it was described to me as, as kind of being a, a grunt with a brain or a grunt with a math. And I had an engineering degree, and just the the, the concept of uh, mobility and counter mobility, for whatever reason, like really appealed to kind of my my mathematical brain. As an engineer, man, it seems to make total sense. Yeah. So um, that, that was that was the direction I wanted to go, and I was fortunate enough to get it. 
That's awesome. Yeah. And then, uh, so yeah, fast forward, combat engineer school, yeah. and then Mateo. Yep. And this is 2000? You showed up to the fleet? Uh, yeah, so um, I graduated in May of 2000. So TBS was kind of like fall of 2000 into spring of 2001. Combat Engineer School, uh, spring of 2001, leading into summer. Okay. So I came out to Mateo, uh, man, if I'm remembering correctly, like July of 2001. <laughs> and then less than 90 days later. Yeah, 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 yeah. We're... We're at war. Right. Um, so, for me, I, I, obviously I don't want this to be about me, but I, I think contextually, uh, same sort of thing. You know, I, I showed up to the fleet in uh, 99. Clinton era, the real meat eaters were the muse. Everybody else is doing a UDP. Yep. Um, or maybe, you know, on the East Coast, you could get a Unitas sort of thing. But there wasn't a lot of, like, the combat vets, when we were coming in, were the dudes who did, the like, the Kosovo thing. Yeah. Or maybe you get some old salt who were in Somalia. Yeah, maybe Desert Storm guy. East Timor, maybe somebody was out that way. Yeah, yeah. But for the most part, it's the Muse, yeah. it's bilat training, and there's not a lot of, like... What we would what we would see in the future, yeah. dude. 9-11 happens, and everybody's wearing their brown pants. And so for me, I was down at Del Mar, and as you know, with Del Mar, the only thing separating the barracks, access to the camp, and five I five freeway is like a chain link fence. So, dude, everybody to the armory. We're loading up. We're freaking out. You guys are just up the street from the San Onofre nuclear power plant. Right. What was that day like for you? What was 9-11 like for you guys? Yeah. Um, I mean, so I wasn't actually even like, I was a combat engineer officer, but I had been assigned to the Motor T platoon just because they didn't have a combat engineer platoon um, to give. So I was I was in charge of Motor T. And we'd been, we were like PT in that morning. We were playing basketball. Yeah. And we showed up back from the basketball courts. Everybody's all sweaty and, you know, showering up and stuff. And it's like, what is on the news? Yeah. And, uh, you know, I remember kind of um, seeing things play out at the CP just on the news throughout the day. And it's it's kind of a foggy understanding now looking back on it, you know, 20 years later, um, the events of that day. But the, the, the overarching impression is that, okay, we're at war. And at the time, it's like, I don't know. What does that even mean, right? Yeah, well, it's yeah. just really ambiguous. It's like, who with? Who are we at war with? Mm -hmm. Someone's mm -hmm. declared war on us, but I don't really, it's really hard to conceptualize that. Right. And um, I, th I think in the months that followed, our training, um, you know, really ramped up. I, I was given um, charge of a combat en engineer platoon. Our training sort of followed the path that we all saw, you know, maybe on the news of, of like, hey, here's the responsibility, and this is essentially what we're going to do about it as a nation. And we, we sort of tracked, we're starting to track on Afghanistan, and then I think slowly after that on Iraq. Um, and and we can talk about more the, the reasons, whether they're right or wrong for going to those places. But um, ultimately, it, it sort of coalesced into this training pipeline of, like, hey, and, and you know, too, it's like signed up during the peacetime military. And what was really interesting for me was like, it really makes you evaluate 
the oath that you've taken and the sacrifices that you're hopefully willing to make. Um, and, and we, so we dealt with like some conscientious uh, objectors mm-hmm. up until that point, and um, you know, it, like it really made you evaluate the, the oath that you took and, and to to what level are you willing to really kind of sacrifice uh, on behalf of this nation that's called you to serve. Yeah, no, that's a good point, man, because like it's so hard to look back on it without overlaying the past 20 years. Mm-hmm. But I know, at least from what I'm trying to remember and glean from those times was also this sense of, dude, let's like really figure this thing out. Because like you said, it, there's not a sovereign nation that just attacked us. There's not uniformed combatants in Manhattan taking ground and holding position. Right. It's this completely ambiguous asymmetric threat and as we start to learn more about what al-qaeda was and what violent extremism was Mm -hmm. it's like dude it is everywhere and there's all of these it's a spider web and we're trying to like find a way to cut the web or whatever it was i mean it was just so insane but the nation is calling on us to respond we're super pissed we want to respond Um, so yeah, it was such a crazy time and yeah, it's hard to like divest that experience from what we, we know now. It's virtually impossible. Right. And, uh, I think I, I, um, I, I told you before we did the show, I, I have a, a complicated relationship yeah. with, uh, with the Marine Corps and, and good and bad. Right. Um, and I think, you know, at the time, it was it was a bit difficult because the only deployment I ever did was to Iraq, and at the time it was a bit difficult even for me as you know as, as a young CEO of a platoon to to connect those dots mm-hmm. a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, but at the same time, and I, and I think to this day it, it kind of rings true is that um, you know the the desire to serve and the intent matters, and and the whole reason I, I joined up in the first place was with the intent to serve. Um, and to a certain degree, your contract with the United States Marine Corps, with the contract of the United States government, is that you're you're a tool of United States international policy. Whether they, you know, whether the powers that be who are elected officials by we the people um, choose to utilize you um, in a manner that you find is suitable or not, you know, um, ultimately remains to be seen. But to me, the the intent matters, and the character behind it matters. The character of the Marines matter, um, and and that I think has has been a part of you know me coming to terms um, you know here fifteen years removed from um, being out of the Marine Corps as like a, yeah I, I am I am proud of, of the service that I gave. Uh, did I always necessarily agree? You know, especially with hindsight being twenty twenty, um, with you know. Maybe some of the reasons that we were over there. No, not necessarily. But um, I love those Marines, um, like brothers, and, um, and and that service uh, and that camaraderie is is really, I think, the crux of it. Yeah. And you know, Iraq being what it was, and, and I'm sure we'll talk about this in a little bit as well. But it's a validation um, for all the training. Um, that that we do and really like what had been the the focus of my entire adult life. Yeah, absolutely. And and 
you know, and, and I think too, just for those, you know, I mean, all of these wounds, I think, are all of these scars opened up again after the, you know, the very abrupt withdrawal from Afghanistan. 100%. Uh, you know, and it was like, you know, here we go again, because we'd all just experienced it a few years before when we abruptly pulled out of Iraq and then ISIS came uh, into prominence. And so I think it again, like it's really hard to divest uh, our memory from our knowledge. But at the same time, like I, I know even as I was having a complicated relationship with the war and in uniform. Yeah. Even as late as 07 and 08, when we were in Abu Hayat, just south of Haditha and Haqqaniya, just outside of Al-Assad, the thing that I focused on that I, again, like you're saying, like have so much pride in, in that I will take with me to the grave is, is that regardless of whatever the foreign policy was and regardless of what our elected officials had at the strategic level, dude, at the tactical level, what we were doing mattered and it there was goodness there. Like yes. we liberated a village and granted it's maybe only a few hundred people, but those hundred people no longer had to live under the umbrella of tyranny anymore right. because we were there and we said, no, this isn't happening under our watch. Right. And just like Charlie Company, third tracks, just like, you know, I think it was uh, second battalion, first Marines. Uh, I think it was, you know, all of these other units that went in there and said the exact same thing and drew that line in the sand and said, you're not going to terrorize these people anymore. Yeah. That shit matters. Yeah. And you can't, nothing's going to take that away from us. Right. And so, anyways, that's my soapbox on that one. And, and I hope in some way that no, resonates. Yeah. Yeah. So it's like, you may agree or disagree with the reasons for going. Ultimately, I think they were, they were unclear at the time. But we did a lot of good work over there. We, you know, um, I mean, we, a, a, a big part of my job uh, as a combat engineer, I was assigned to um, rebuild a bunch of schools um, in, in the town of Najaf, which. Yeah, I know. Yeah, yeah, Najaf, yeah, for yeah, sure. Uh, uh, largely uh, Shiite um, region um, that had frankly been uh, neglected and, um, you know, fairly beat up mm -hmm, um, mm -hmm. as a result of the previous regime that was there. And yeah. One of the most. I think influential and, and hopefully um, impactful things that we did while we were there. Um, to not have the follow up is, is you know, difficult. Yeah. You like that. But the other thing, too, is it's like, okay, agree or disagree, but I'm also not going to not be there. Right. You know? Right. These are my guys. This is a validation for the training that we're going to be doing. And if, if I'm not there to do it with them, then someone else is going to be doing it. And frankly, I'm. This is my job to do. Yeah. And I've never been more hopeful of the future of America in seeing these 18 to 25-year-olds doing the work that they were doing under these just absolutely horrific conditions against this seemingly omnipresent enemy that wanted nothing more than see them all coming home in a body bag. Right. And to see the ways in which they performed i was like we're gonna be we're gonna be okay yeah. like this country is in good hands because these marines are fucking unbelievable and 
you know, I know, and we'll, we'll get to this, but I mean, you were in Fallujah, but I got a lot of those same guys back. Yeah. Um, and they're going again and not only going again, but then being told, Hey, those same dudes you were fighting with in Fallujah are now on our side and, Oh, you're going to partner with them. Yeah. You're going to do patrolling with them. Yeah, yeah. You're going to stand post with them. You're going to fight against this enemy with them. Even though just 18 months ago, you guys were like full on hooking and jabbing in one of the most historic battles, you know, Marine Corps history. And to see them take that on and do the wonderful, I mean, again, I, I can't say enough about that generation of Marines um, because I was just so impressed almost on a daily basis. Yeah. And so, and so I guess enough about the world according to Vic, but so then you 9-11 happens, but you don't go until 04, is that right? That's right, yeah. So what was that? What was that? You guys were just, just preparing, just training? Yeah, we were wrapping up our training and uh, being combat engineers, you know, a lot of our, our training um, dealt with demolition. And um, uh, it was, as all training is, you know, sort of the crawl, walk, run, um, but maybe a bit accelerated just due to the fact that, okay, and like we were talking about, like we know we're at war now, and and as that sort of coalesced, yeah, um, so did our training specific to the region and the enemy that, that yeah we figured we'd be fighting. Um, and so we were conducting a lot of um, like urban breaching, urban mobility, um, in, in the lead up to the initial assault into Iraq in in two thousand three, um, and it's it's a super long story, but ultimately um, we were at a. A training range um, one evening conducting some live fire training with some demolition and uh, I suffered a pretty significant training accident and um, partial amputation of my right and left hands um, and, and fortunately not a whole lot of additional injuries because it could have been a lot worse I was, I was holding on to an explosive charge uh, as it detonated Jeez. and then so, I mean, what, what was that recovery like? Um, I mean, at, at the time, was it in, going through your mind, or you're just like, this is it, like, I'm, I'm not going to be a Marine in uniform any longer? I, I didn't know. You know, it was, I think that was pretty far from my mind at that point. Um, the initial reaction was um, just kind of like a massive F-bomb, like, what just happened? Mm -hmm. And um, so... Immediately following, you know, the, the sense of depression that I felt and that sort of the resignation, not only that um, I was now like physically altered and changed and, and in some ways you, you call it like incapacitated, mm -hmm. um, but also the, the salt on the moon was now, this is November of 2002 and, and the war is essentially imminent at this point. Yeah. And your boys are about to deploy without you. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there there are units already heading to Kuwait at this point. Yep, and and very shortly thereafter, my platoon did just that. And the physical recovery, um, you know, the, the immediate physical re recovery was pretty pretty significant. I was in the hospital for upwards of a month, probably just um, surgeries, rehabilitation, um, all that stuff. But I, I wasn't fit um, for deployment. At the, at the time when my entire battalion rolled around and uh, for deployment. And, uh, you know, in, in the same vein, right, like, like the Mew was the place to be, at the, you know, up until 9-11 happened. It was like, as a combat engineer especially, yeah. we have an entire battalion of Marines, virtually none of whom ever deploy. 
only our alpha company was designated for deployment, one platoon at a time with a meter. Yep. And so the, the meat eaters were the guys who were selected to to be an alpha company. And and they would rotate through this this deployment cycle. You'd get one pump and that was it. That's that was yeah. it. Hey, join the Marine Corps, see the world. That was your one opportunity to actually deploy up until that point. Yeah. And uh, you know, subsequently, so my entire battalion leaves without me and I'm the senior man left behind with kind of I mean for lack of a better term kind of sick lame and lazy yeah you know all the folks that couldn't or wouldn't deploy and it was a really small contingent you know out of a battalion of maybe 800 yeah marines maybe like 20 of us didn't deploy and so I'm left sitting there and as we just talked about it, it's like I'll be damned if someone else is going to go over there yeah and do this job that that I've raised my hand to say I was going to do and uh I would be lying to you if I told you that I was like sunshine and rainbows at the time. Sure. I, I certainly wasn't. Yeah. I mean, and this is going to be a reoccurring theme throughout, but I mean, you know, when we talk like, I mean, you're like the poster boy for like perseverance and resilience. And so, whereas many probably would have been like, uh, all right, you know, this, this is it. Let me just start working on the next phase of my life. You're yeah. like, fuck that. Like I'm going. Yeah. So yeah. So you, you, you get into the recovery. Has anybody at this point told you like, Hey, you're not going to be able to do this thing. Or was it pretty encouraging? Like, Hey, if you want to stay with it, we'll get you where you want to be. Yeah. So a good question. And, and yeah, I, I didn't know at the time. And so they put you before the, the med board, right. Yeah. Which is convened by at the time. I, I you know, he's a Navy surgeon. He was an orthopedic surgeon. And I don't remember the guy's name. I wish I did, but he's super cool. And um, at the time, I, I just, I, I sort of transitioned from being in this this sort of dark, like, woe is me place to, uh, hey, my mission is to get myself better. And if the opportunity does arise again, you know, to, to pounce on it. Um, and, and so I, I transitioned into sort of recovering. And um, the, the officer that can be in this med board was essentially like, hey, Prove to me that you can do all the things that a Marine is expected to do, you know, fire a weapon, mm -hmm. do pull-ups, you know, all, all the stuff that's expected of you, operate right. the radio. Um, and so I rehabbed with, with that being my intent. Um, and I, I sort of, I, I went through the, all the wickets um, to, to pass through the med board and still retain my commission, um, which I did. And um, as, as we all now know, in hindsight, you know, the, the boys came home from their deployment to Iraq in fairly short order. Yeah. You know, not, not unscathed, certainly, but almost with a sense of, hey, we were there for a few months and, and the lion's share of the work is done. And now we maintain a presence there and everybody, you know, hops on board with, with this ideal of what we got going on over there. Yeah. Very soon found out that, you know, that was not necessarily the case. Um, but I had rehabbed to the point where when they got back, like shortly thereafter, I was, I was essentially deployment ready shortly thereafter. And my, my battalion commander at the time um, had, I don't know, had pity on me or had some foresight or whatever, but um, essentially put me in a position where I was now platoon commander in Alpha Company, um, which again, Alpha Company was yes. the company designated to attaching a platoon um, to that 
that battalion landing team at the Mia. So at least, you know, the potential existed for me to get a pump in mm-hmm. um, if if nothing else. Yeah. Um, so that's kind of how I, how I landed in the Alpha Company. Instead of, and so instead of a pump, you guys had to do our right. Yeah, we got Just in time for... Do not pass go, do not yeah. collect $200. And is this... Is this um, uh, Fallujah two, or yeah, Fallujah we were one? there for Fallujah two. Okay. So we were we floated um, in I want to say May of two thousand four. Mm-hmm. Um, so I believe Fallujah part one was kind of it's like, like April, yeah. yeah, like March April, yeah, of that same year, and obviously with some pretty disastrous consequences. Sure, um, and some some pretty bitter taste left. In a lot of Marine Corps mouths, mm-hmm. for mm-hmm. sure, right? So I, we were part of um, Fallujah Part Two. Yeah, yeah. And so you guys do the cordon, you burn it up, you give them seventy-two hours. Anybody left is a shithead, and we're coming in. Kind of. Well, I mean, even before that was Najaf, right? Yeah. And, okay. A lot of people forget about Najaf. Yeah. But Najaf really was like, I mean, you kind of like take over for an army unit there. What was previously. You know, kind of this sleepy hollow with a, a sort of handshake agreement of you don't shoot at us, we don't shoot at you. Absolutely exploded right uh, in the summer of 2004. And it was, you know, the, the fighting was tombstone to tombstone, um, you know, into the heart of this massive warren for really kind of like well in excess of a month. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. So, so that was kind of like us cutting our teeth. Over there, and for me, not having even been in the march up in 2003, it's like, oh, okay, yeah, this is fairly intense, yeah. Um, and then we got the entire BLT did not transfer from Najaf to Fallujah. We got found out along with, I think, our tanks, uh, snipers, and just a couple little odds and ends to support, yeah, the, the cordon and then the attack down into Fallujah, yeah, yeah. So we got we got a pretty healthy um, chunk. Yeah, so I mean, it's, it's, I mean, you're hooking and jabbing from the moment you get there up until you're on patrol. Right. right? Yeah. And this is, it, this, you've transitioned, you're now out of Najaf in Fallujah, is that right? Fallujah, yeah. We had created uh, the combat breach um, over the, there's like this, an infamous set of train tracks and a train station um, at the north end of the city. A uh, ton of preparatory fire into the city. Um, they, you know, they, um, even the presumption, I think, before going into Fallujah was, hey, we've done a bunch of psyops beforehand. We've dropped pamphlets. We're offering refuge and shelter. Anyone who wants out of the city. Three hots on a cot if you make it out, right? Like, you just walk out. Yeah. We're good. And more. Yeah. And uh, with the presumption that anybody left behind is has ill intent. Yeah. Um, and, and so we're assaulting into the city. We create the combat breach. Um, into the city, and then we're doing sort of follow-up operations. Um, ended up getting assigned to um, a unit um, with the designation of Task Force Brunel, which I believe was um, it fell under the um, the command of RCT One okay. at the time. Um, and so it was uh, it was us, the contingent of tracks, because we didn't have our own organic vehicles at mm-hmm. the time. Mm-hmm. So you guys were driving us around, um, and some snipers providing sort of overwatch and security. And uh, we would bypass a lot of, you know, hardened spots or, you know, just to, to maintain momentum yeah. in the assault. And uh, we would go back through and mop up. Um, EOD was super taxed at the time. Sure. So with our, you know, kind of with our, our specialty um, in, in demolition, we're, you know, we sort of assume this role as collecting up a bunch of, um, you know, weapons and munitions. UXO. Yeah, otherwise, yeah. Well, and not even UXO, but frankly, like being utilized to 
to create IEDs because the IED threat was just right. It was off the chart, and it was like as many advances as we could make, both tactically and technologically. Um, they would, you know, leapfrog ahead of us, and so it was like almost on a daily basis sometimes, and gather all, all that stuff and, and control the explosions virtually every night in order to make sure that it wasn't going to Yeah, and yeah. So that, that's kind of what we were doing, just patrolling block by block and, uh, yeah, saying, hey, you know, this house, search in progress, search complete, like secondary search complete, on to the next. And then you came up on some folks. We did. Yeah. Yeah, we came up on, on um, some, some, some folks that had been bypassed. Um, we exchanged some gunfire and uh, in, during an engagement, um, kind of in the center of town, uh, I was shot. And you, I guess, if you don't mind, I mean, sort of talk us through that. Yeah. Um, I, I think I've heard in, in previous interviews that he felt like he got hit with a baseball bat. Yeah. It felt like in slam. I, I don't know. I've never actually been hit with a baseball bat. I mean, you can only imagine. Yeah, like he was struck with a car or something. Like, it, it was it was a hell of a smack. And, uh, yeah, I just, I found myself face down in the dirt and it's not it's outside of your body armor right so i mean yeah so i i wore almost like infamously small like uh gen one sappy plates you yeah know, yeah, like yeah. The, the flak vest yeah had the little grind protector that's like just long enough it reaches <laughs> yeah. down there um but it, it struck me in the side kind of in my right hip um it's very fortunate that that the round impacted um not into my femur but kind of maybe maybe i'm lucky maybe not i don't know um, certainly fortunate to be alive. Yeah. Um, but the round passed through um, my right hip, um, out sort of like my upper left um, butt cheek area. Man. And, uh, yeah. Some, how it missed all of your organs. It was freaking amazing. Yeah. It didn't miss all of them for sure. Yeah. I guess that's yeah, right. All, yeah. the, all the super critical stuff. Right. Right. It was, yeah, absolutely phenomenal to me. Um, but uh, yeah, very fortunate. Um, but yeah, like obviously some pretty intense hemorrhaging. Um, that went along with it. Um, some really vague recollections um, of after I got shot to mm-hmm. actually uh, medevaced. Uh, I know, you know, we were returning fire. Obviously, um, my Marines did an exceptional job of coordinating my medevac. Um, you know, tanks came in and, and, and sort of assisted um, not only like the, you know, the combat engines and the, the AAVs on the ground, um, but now tanks rolled in and, and kind of helped us mop that all up. But yeah. I remember, so my CEO from the battalion landing team was up from the job to just kind of, you know, hey, what are your redeployment needs? We're, we're getting, you know, kind of close to the end of our, our time there. And we have a really big logistical footprint of how are we going to move all your stuff back to the States? You know, what does it look like transitioning you guys from Fallujah back to the job before we, we get back? Um, and he was, he was up essentially doing kind of like a field trip. And I just remember a couple of my Marines hucking me up under the arms, tossing me in an AAV. The AAV transferred me to his Humvee, and uh, he's sitting in the front seat. And I, I handed him my you know my map that had, had all of our search um, grids on it and, and registered targets. And hey, sir, this is where we took fire, kind of thing. Mm-hmm. The corpsman was in the back seat, and I handed him my dog tags. Okay, I'm positive. And, yeah, sure. Yeah, I might need a few liters here, and yeah. uh, everything after that. I'm, I'm presuming I went in shock because my memory is, yeah, essentially non-existent. Jeez, man, that's insane. So, I guess 
you bounce around a little bit, right? So they take you up to when they take you up to Germany at first. Yeah, I, well, I think I went to Bravo Surgical, okay, um, which was um, in Fallujah. Yeah, outside of Fallujah proper. But, yeah, so yeah. you're in the cache at first. Just yeah, and I think they did some, some pretty phenomenal things just to stabilize me um, and get me up to um, yeah. Al Assad. Okay. But I I wasn't away from it. Yeah, yeah. So then, but then I think I've heard you say before, like when you start actually, your active memory engages that you're in Bethesda. Is that right? That's right. So you're you're back stateside now. And I mean, what's kind of what's going through your head? Well, I mean, just the, uh, the really weird existential trip that is having like two plus weeks of your life essentially just like severed. Yeah. And now you're like, you're planted back in an environment that's completely foreign. And you're also very heavily sedated. Yeah. Um, it was, was, um, I, I mean, frankly, I think I just, I had a lot of hallucinations. I was, I was having difficulty separating mm-hmm. reality from, you know, whatever my mind was, was conjuring up. Yeah, dude, it's so crazy, like, how the mind will protect itself yeah. in those ways. Um, but, yeah, it's got to be really jarring. Yeah, well, in ways I still don't fully understand. And, and I was, I think, removed from the sedation you know, fairly gradually. But, you know, my family was there. Yeah. Um, thankfully, they had joined me in Germany. Um, and I think done something that was far more traumatic than even this injury was for me in just seeing me in the condition that I was. Mm. And, uh, my parents rode on a medevac flight with me back and not just me, but like a bunch of other yeah. sailors, Marines. That yeah. Probably way more fucked up than I was. Um, yeah, I had a buddy in Fallujah and he say, uh, in a similar way, took a ricochet, uh, that, it, and he was a casualty that took him out of the fight. Mm-hmm. And he said that his time in the cash was way worse yeah. than the actual oh, man. injury yeah. itself. Um, and I think he actually like went old school and just like, once he was good enough to walk, he just left because yeah. he just couldn't be in there with all those, you know, young Marines just as chewed up. Well, so again, like, just like my, my childhood was, I was super fortunate. It showed back up in Bethesda and I had the support system of my parents, my brother, like, Tons of well wishes, right? Because we're in the DC area, which is really close to Annapolis, really yeah. close to TBS, which yeah. again is kind of where I cut my teeth yeah. as a as a Marine. And so I've got visitors like all day, every day. If I want them, if I don't, yeah. they'll go away and come back. What an odd, like sort of, what's the word? Like, cir- I'm going to make up a word here, but like circularity of life, right? Like you've come full circle, right? Like this is where you entered into service. Yeah. This is where you, like I said, like where the, the clay has been molded and then here you are back now. Yeah. You know, it's just, it's very, it's odd, man. Yeah. It kind of gives me goosebumps a little bit thinking yeah. about it. No, me as well. And, and uh, you know, I, I've been thinking about it a lot, maybe more lately now than, than ever, but um, just like a, a couple little things that I think about um, during that time at Bethesda, but you know, first and foremost, it was it was a far more significant injury than than the injury to my hands had been. Um, but I and, and I know I've mentioned it previously, but I almost felt like I was primed mm-hmm. to make a physical recovery, and and for whatever reason, knew that I was I was capable of doing it. Even yeah, like I had to literally learn how to rewalk um, again, and. Uh, it, 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 it like it wasn't even a question, and so there was no. 
you know, I remember going through my list of medications when I was finally coherent enough to evaluate like what they had going on. And, and I was, I had the benefit of my mom being there too, who had been a nurse. You nurse, for, right, for right. Like, for like 35 years. And so um, not only is she like there for me personally and emotionally, but she's also advocating for my care. And so yeah. he does not need this. He needs this. So I'm going down my list of medications like, hey, what's this? Oh, well, it's an antidepressant. We find that a lot of people that come back from an injury like this, super disoriented, have seven on an antidepressant. Nope, get it off the list. Yeah, yeah let's yeah. let's not cross that bridge and burn that bridge yeah. just yet. Right? Yeah, like, I get the concept. Yeah. But, um, so so not only am I primed for a physical recovery, and I'm not feeling any of the depression or like self doubt or angst that was present from my hand injury, but now I'm like the senior guy on the ward at Bethesda. And it's like, I, I don't know how to walk yet, but I, I was relearning how to walk, right? And they gave me this walker and, and this, these these ladies had like crocheted a little like crocheted, I don't even know what you call it, but yeah. like a little name placard. Oh, nice, nice. On it, like Velcroed on it. Oh, that's, how, that's really cool. And so I'm making the rounds for all these young Marines and mm-hmm. sailors that like, frankly, um, you know, sadly, um, didn't have the support structure mm-hmm. and, and were suffering um, injuries for the first time or injuries that were far more significant than mine or both. Right, right. And it's like, a, I got to come and say hi to this guy. Yeah. You know, uh, and that that was by far like the most meaningful and the most difficult part uh, of my recovery. I mean, uh, my, my family might, might, might disagree with that, but sure. um, for me, yeah. being in Bethesda was, was hard for that that reason. We yeah. talk about like the TBI ward and, yeah. and just the um, just the recovery um, that those folks have to make and, and still struggle with today. So yeah. the, the, the most difficult part, but also the most um, the most meaningful part. Of, of being in Bethesda. Dude. Well, somebody else make, is making the rounds at that point, too. And so you get your Bronze Star is given to you by somebody pretty special. Uh, I mean, not your Bronze Star, your, your Purple Heart. Purple Heart yeah. yeah, I'm sorry. Yeah, yeah. Is, um, yeah, you, by talking about that. Yeah, so President Bush yeah. um, visited and, uh, and and put my Bronze Star on me. And I, I remember. Your purple, purple Heart, yeah. Sorry, yeah. I, I planted yeah. Bronze Star. No, no, it's okay. I definitely I don't have a Bronze Star for all the listenership, by the way. <laughs> yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, pin my, my Purple Heart on me. And, um, you know, for better or for worse, and, and you know, um, talking about the reasons for, for going or staying in, or leaving in Iraq, um, the, you know, the, the man made the rounds, he made the trip, and he, he shook my hand, uh, he hugged my parents, um, and, and ultimately, you know, it's like, if you're going to be the guy that's responsible for that, then then, then you, you witness the results, yeah. good and bad, um, first person, and, and regardless of what else um, you'll say about him, he he had the, the personal fortitude and the courage to come through that. Like I said, I know he visited with people that were far worse off um, yeah. than, than I was. Um, so um, Yeah, that's not political theater. No, I, I don't think so. Yeah. Um, and and uh, it was never like the, the picture of him being taken with me while they wouldn't let, you know, me take pictures. Um, you know, it was done by his photographer. Sure. It wasn't ever like published anywhere. Right, right. right. Um, yeah. Dude, amazing. Well, hey, we're going to take a quick break. Um, yeah. And uh, yeah, we'll be right back. All right. 
All right. Well, we're back. Um, and just sort of during the break, uh, you know, we're talking a little bit about sort of our experiences. And, and, and first off, man, I just got to say, like, thank you so much for sharing your experiences and for your willingness to be vulnerable. Dude, I mean, that that is that was so powerful and no, profound thank you for sharing too and, and allowing me to yeah like i said i, got, I think I, I told you on the break that sometimes i feel like i get on my soapbox and a lot of that soapbox has been generated over 20 years of like looking back and you know having the opportunity to filter things through a lens yeah it's like yeah we're it, time has sort it, of allowed us given us yeah, yeah time has given us that ability to discern a little bit um but I mean, that's a soapbox you've earned <laughs> and like never, ever apologize for no, getting no, it. I mean, maybe that so, way. maybe not. Ultimately, it's it's a personal opinion, but at least I think it has the backing of me having been there, having, having met Iraqis, having generated friendships with them, having done my best to learn some of the language, having incorporated myself enough into the culture to say, hey, we're going to help you build the school. Hey, we're going to partner with this contractor. Hey, we're going to... We're going to take care of this family who's, who's like water main. We fucked up while building the CP at the entrance to our fob. Yeah. You know, and, and it's all those things like that where it's like, I think the intent of that stuff still matters. And overall, um, our, our reasons for going back to Iraq, you, you probably picked up on. I have some, some pretty significant part them with, um, as well as our, our reasons for really not having a presence there anymore, because it's all these partnerships that we make over there. And I, I, I'm happy to say that at least I was there to try and do it to the best of my ability to do those things that were genuinely good things to do them right. Yeah. Yeah. It, it is hard, um, I think, to separate sort of that in the trenches view where as we talked about like goodness was occurring at the individual level like yeah. your experiences as nick as you know lieutenant cult as captain cult like those things they mattered they absolutely mattered and it gets a, a lot of times in the in the conversation it gets overlooked because at the at the larger level at the strategic level at the at the machine level it just seems like it. We're all just sort of another cog, yes, in the grinding of this like monstrous beast, yes. Um, and yeah, I mean, it's hard, uh, you know, without like sort of naming thing, you know, naming names. I mean, it, it's hard. And we were talking about this during the break that like all of the experiences you had, and then I go back in '07. 08 and there's just this massive infrastructure yep. that's there. Fluja doesn't look like what it looked like three years yeah. earlier. Uh, Haditha Dam is this massive machine uh, of, you know, just infrastructure and of, you know, of the sort of uh, the defense contracting world. Yeah. And you see the same sticker on in the, 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 you know, in the cans, as you see in the shitter, as you see in the chow halls, it's all the same thing coming from the same sort of conglomerate. And it does make you wonder, like, what the hell are we doing here? Well, it makes it almost impossible to not think that the military industrial complex is profiting from that. 
which ultimately makes me feel like Iraq was a whole lot of bullshit. In a yeah, lot of ways. yeah. And especially when you see your your boys shed blood on that behalf. Yeah. And at the time, I bought into it, and, and frankly, again, that's that's part of the contract, right? Is is like, hey, I accept that I'm a tool of international policy, of U.S. policy, and there's there's a handshake on the other side, and it, it may be the one you wanted or you don't, but hopefully, you enter into it with your eyes open. Like, I mean, the Marine Corps does some great things, and that's why I said my my relationship with it is super complicated. Yeah. Because for as much as as I see that relationship with Iraq right now, and knowing how much guys did and still do suffer as a result of it. I, I also see, you know, um, so many good things that come from it. Yeah. And I, I'm not just talking about the touchy-feely, like, friendships and uh, lifelong camaraderie, um, which is obviously, for me, the number one, but also something as simple as, like, the GI Bill. Yeah. Um, you know, or, or someone like, like Paul Grieve, who you interviewed fairly recently, where it's like, this guy is, is making our planet a better place yeah. for our kids. Yeah. And ultimately, the Marine Corps helped him carve a path to do that. And, and to me, ultimately, that's what it's about, right? It's, it's like, let's, let's leave this place a little bit better than we found it. Um, and, and like I said, the intent still matters there. The, the concept of service still matters there. And, and to do that little piece um, right to the best of your ability matters. Yeah, I think, I think there's a, that's a really profound perspective. Um, and I think a lot of that for you, and I don't want to, I don't want to tell you what's going on in your own head, but I mean, you're. I'm still finding out what's going on. <laughs> yeah, let's, let's figure it out together, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. I have no idea. It's just, it's just a hamster wheel that I drop some cheese down every now and again, right? And so, yeah. Um, but I, I think that like it's that perseverance and that resilience you have, I think, allows you a, a, almost a greater level of discernment because, like you said, like you are entering into these things eyes wide open well, hopefully and, right yeah and i mean i'm still i'm still growing into my understanding of yeah and uh I, I told you during the break too it's like now i've got really small kids they're four and one and uh my wife has asked me she's like man you're gonna you're telling me you're gonna take these kids back to annapolis and they're gonna have the same experience that that you did of seeing all this stuff for the first time and not want to do what you wanted to do and I, i've wrestled with it and still wrestled to it like what do I do when my daughter and my son says, Hey dad, I want to join the Marines or you know, I, yeah. I want to join the military. And, uh, and, and at least where I'm at now, and this may not be where I am tomorrow or a month or a year from now is that, you know, I've got to encourage it because I think the concept of service is still one that's not, it's not just inherent throughout our society, but I think it's one that it's one that's going to carry us through. If anything is going to, it's the one that's going to make the world a better place. Not only for for us, but for our children, our yeah. children's children, right? And it's like, how can you stomp on that concept of service? How how can you try and curtail that? And I I, I don't think I can, but you know, I, I'd hope that if if that is something my kids eventually want to do, that they do it with their eyes open, that they do it with a sense of of service in mind, and and again with with a an understanding of the character and the sacrifice that it takes in order to try and do it against a, a system or an, an institution that while it may project certain values or state that it cares about certain values may not always necessarily hold to them on an institutional level. Yeah. Amen to that, brother. I mean, I think 
to it's so easy to get so disenfranchised once you see behind the curtain. Yeah. You know, once you realize that the wizard is just this old guy, <laughs> you know. But I, I still don't have the Marine Corps. Right, and that's the thing, and, that, and that's where I think like there's so much goodness in what you're talking about because it's like, hey, even within this thing that seems so removed and so almost antithetical to what it is you want to do, once you're in that trench, once you're with a Marine on your right and your left, and you're you're running towards the sound of chaos, there's goodness that you can affect. There's change. There's positivity that you can bring at that level. And so let's not lose the forest through the trees yeah. sort of thing. Like, service is important. Being in a position where people are under an umbrella of tyranny and you... Nick Culp, Vic Rubel, fill in the name, can go there and help remove that thing so that, yes, the rest of the world may suck and it may, but at least the thing they don't have to worry about is dying that day or being oppressed that day or having to be scared of that immediate thing that day. They can be scared about a bunch of other stuff, but let's give them the freedom to be afraid of those things rather than just having to worry about being killed or having their parents killed for speaking out of turn or not wearing the right equipment yep. or not praying the right prayer or whatever it is. Fill in, you know, the the extremist shithead du jour. Sure. Getting that out of their way. So then let the rest then, then the rest of life could then beat them about the head and ears. Yeah. But at least it won't be that one thing that they emote like their Maslow's hierarchy of needs. We can at least yeah. chip away at some of those other things. Exactly. And I, I think you, you hit the nail on the head when you talk about like like the immediate needs, like you know, food, shelter, safety. Yeah, a certain degree of freedom, right? I, I think you gotta be careful. And and I, I know I try to be as well when you try to impose an ideal that's like very strictly American or very strictly like, hey, this is life according to Nick. Um, but but ultimately, I think if people are acting in good faith and, and trying to make the place a better a better place for their children, that, that that's what it's all yeah. about. Right? Yeah. And I, I really do feel like, again, that perseverance theme, like just don't let the world beat you down. Yep. Like there's we matter. There's value in what we do. Yes. And so just do that. And we'll worry about the bigger stuff, I guess, later on. I yeah. don't mean that to sound like dismissive or like to kick the can on the road because obviously the big issues are big for a reason. Yeah. But they can really overwhelm you. Yes. And just stifle any of the good intent yep. that you may want to bring to the table. And that I think those things that you bring matter. Yeah. Right? I agree. And so... Again, perseverance. You're uh, medically retired. Yes. And I think in most cases, it would be very understandable if you just said, "F it, man. I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna ride this thing up." But you don't. What happens? You go on a ride along. Yeah. 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 <laughs> so I, I was telling you earlier, yeah. I, I thought I wanted to be a teacher after the Marine Corps, and uh, I gave it a try. And uh, it turns out that like high school kids are assholes. <laughs> <laughs> no, no way. I don't believe. No, that. no, it's true. It's true. <laughs> they're, they're also great, right? Yeah, but, yeah. So I was substitute teaching, which is kind of like, you know, I want to say it's like teaching life because you get to 
to, to pick and choose the days that you want to work or not work as, as you see fit. But it's also like you're, you're tossed into a classroom where they're like, hey, substitute. Yeah, fresh day. meat, fresh yeah, meat. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, you know, I maybe didn't give myself a fair enough shake as far as like really immersing myself into teaching and finding out what it was like. But I wasn't, I just wasn't enjoying myself and it didn't resonate with me the way I thought it might. Um, and so I was, I was in California because I'd sort of traveled around a little bit um, to do sort of almost like a walkabout after I got out of the Marines, did some teaching back in California. Um, and a neighbor of mine uh, was a firefighter um, with the city of Long Beach, still is. I was like, hey, man, why don't you do a ride along? I think like apropos of nothing, like with no intent of me getting hired on as a job, I think truly with just the idea of like, hey, let's hang out. Okay. You can see what my job is like. Yeah. And I showed up and it was all of the things that I had missed about the Marine Corps that I didn't realize I was missing. It was like the camaraderie. It was the intensity. It was the, you know, the interaction with, with other people. It was the, 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 the element of service with the concept of, I think, sacrifice. Um, or the potential therein, yeah, like intertwined with it. That even today, I'm like, I'm, I'm still working on articulating, but it helps for me to think of of my current occupation, potentially a future occupation, in that regard, because it's like, man, that's what really drives me. And uh, I, I finished a 24 hour ride along. I mean, there's nothing dramatic, you know. There, I don't think we. I'm sure we didn't like save any children from a burning building or anything yeah. like that. But I got to witness what these guys do on a daily basis. And, and it was just a jaw on the floor moment of like, they pay people to do that? <laughs> yeah, yeah. And uh, uh, it, the, that was back in the day when you'd actually fill out uh, a handwritten resume and you know, deliver it or mail it in as opposed to like filling out an online resume. Yeah, and I, yeah. Those guys drove me in the fire engine down to City Hall and I filled in a handwritten resume and uh, you know, delivered it to the HR department or, or whoever. Yeah, you know, um, the hiring process took a while, but uh, yeah, eventually I got hired on. That's awesome. Yeah, and so are you considered then as a sort of lack of a better term, a boot firefighter? Are you considered an engineer? No, no, you're, yeah, you're just you're a, an entry level firefighter, and yeah, you're like you call it a probie or you call it a rookie. Our probationary period is about a year long. Okay, um, in Long Beach, you know, which which is um, it's almost like I don't want to say it's boot camp because it's definitely not boot camp, but there's a a four month academy that takes place beforehand yeah. that just teaches you the entry level um, task level skills that are required for you to operate effectively and with like the very minimum level of safety standards. Kind of like an SOI or entry-level yeah. school yeah. sort of thing. Yeah, exactly. Not quite boot camp, but they're still kicking some stress no, your way. A, and, you're right, though. Yeah. It is even like your basic marksmanship, like, yeah. you know, like marching. It, it's and, and while you're not doing that, obviously, yeah. it's like, hey, it's it's hey, this is how you employ a ladder on scene of a fire. This is how you cut a hole in the roof. This is how you charge a hose line, take a hose line into a building. This is how you do a medical assessment. Yeah, yeah. And so they teach you all those things. So you have a basic level of understanding. And then you get the real, like, kind of on-the-job training and, and the advancement of your career when you go out. But they, they do a really good job of – and coming from a military background, it was like, man, the Long Beach Fire Department in particular does an excellent job of taking people from all walks of life – um, regardless of whether or not they have previous fire experience and transferring them into the way like our municipality does things specifically. But now you're like 
you're hyperfunctional. Yeah. Uh, on what we call the floor, but basically like in an operating capacity in the community. Yeah, yeah. And, and so does Long Beach Fire have their own academy or is there like a yeah. southern? Okay. Yep. So if, say, someone's coming out of the Marine Corps and wants to uh, you know, stay in Oceanside, for example, mm-hmm. um, does Oceanside have their own? Yeah, so okay. uh, it's a good question. Um, yeah, and the preponderance of firefighters in the United States, at least my understanding anyway, is that a lot of them are volunteer organizations, right? You're a, a mailman by day or, you know, yeah. a stockbroker or whatever, but you carry your pager and you get paged to the scene of a fire and you show up and someone, you know, maybe one or two people in the department are professional, you know, right. drive the rig over there and then you put down your mailbag. And, and is that, that's a, is that a city budget thing? It's just hard to maintain a yeah, payroll? Yeah, a smaller municipality, especially in like a rural yeah. area, it's, it, it just makes more sense to have a volunteer force. Whereas in Southern California specifically, um, but really throughout a lot of like the more populated United States, it's, it's professional fire departments. Yeah. Um, and, and so... Um, each, like a lot of times an individual municipality, especially if it's bigger, you know, like a, a city of Long Beach or you know, even like a Carlsbad down south or L.A. City or whatever, they have their own fire department. But then there are so many, you know, everything from like major areas in L.A. County to like small unincorporated areas. If you don't have your own municipal fire department, chances are you fall under the umbrella of Los Angeles County right. Fire Department, which is an even bigger entity than like, you know. Far bigger than Long Beach, sure. Certainly, but I, I I believe bigger than L.A. City, and geographically, it's just that's massive. Spread out. Yeah, it's yeah, huge. Yeah, spread out. Yeah. Yeah. Let's and so your your time. Whereas in some cases, for the, for any of those who are interested in in, in joining yeah. uh, fire, yep. it could take a while. It can certainly can. Yeah. Um, at the time, I got hired too. So I got hired in 2008 in Long Beach, which just happened to coincide right with a pretty significant economic downturn. Um, and as a result, I think a lot of municipalities did not hire for a really long time. Um, the difference nowadays, that even you know, I think with some of the potential economic impacts of the pandemic, um, a lot of places are still hiring and really hiring in droves. Yeah. And so what went from being like a very hyper competitive, like thousands of people looking for you know a couple dozens of jobs, has now gone to hey, there are a lot of places hiring. And so for any of the listenership or. Um, I'm a big believer in, in the fact that military service translates really not only easily but also really appropriately and really effectively into a career in the fire service. Yeah. Um, and, and so I, I think the transition is one that makes a lot of sense for a lot of folks. Yeah. That's where your passion lies. I think in a way, and correct me if I'm wrong because it's obviously world according to Vic, but when I look at sort of public service uh, post-military – one of the things I've heard from a lot of my friends or, or Marines that I've known who went into police, it seems like it's directly translatable, but then they feel a little disenfranchised because... Well, here's the thing about, about police, okay. right? And, and the the joke is like, hey, what do all cops and firemen have in common? Well, they all wanted to be firemen. You know? But <laughs> yeah. it's, it, you know, it's funny, but it's it's like, hey, maybe some people are called to be to be cops as well. And I know some, some exceptional... Of course, for sure. And it's like, we absolutely need these guys doing exactly what it is that they're doing. Um, but I, I think a, a part of the thing about cops is like you, 
you don't get the thanks that you do as a firefighter. Sure. Because a firefighter, not all the time, but almost all the time, we're seen as the guys coming to help. Whereas with the police, there's obviously to, well, right. every day something comes out where it's it's like a, a a chip out of their armor where it's it's like hey they're either writing you a speeding ticket or maybe they're racially profiling you or you know they're filling the, the list goes on and on right and and I don't think that they're always um, viewed sometimes appropriately and sometimes not as the good guy and I think. The transition to the fire service, for me at least, especially um, you know, looking back on it and, and talking like we did about having trouble connecting some of the dots with Iraq and be like, man, do we is this really appropriate that we're over here and like really having some some heartache about some of it, right? Um, is that in the fire service? I can almost like I can tell you one hundred percent of the time we are showing up with the intent of being the good guy, like showing up on someone's worst day and doing the best that we can to mitigate whatever situation it is that they're dealing with to the best of our ability. Yeah. And to me, it's, it's, it's a lot easier to connect those dots. Um, I guess theoretically, Yeah. you know, where it's like a leads directly to B like my job is this. And it almost immediately always translates into helping someone out. Yeah, and it could, you know, it's a little hard to translate when it's like, oh, this guy's just got a stub toe and he doesn't really need to be treated by EMS or transported to the hospital. And yeah, we do that a lot too. And sometimes it can feel like not only less than glorious, but maybe like enabling a little bit in a way. But on the other side of that coin is like the, the fact that we genuinely protect life and property. It's it's our mission statement. and. We're focused on meeting it on yeah. a daily basis. Well, then, too, I think that, like, it, it, to go along with sort of the, the perception of the job, a lot of the stuff I've heard from the police, from, you know, guys who went into the police forces, how lonely it is. Yeah. You don't see a firefighter out there by himself. Like, he's not rolling in the no truck. together. That's what I'm saying. So that sense of camaraderie and teamwork is absolutely critical to what you do because you physically, well, maybe you could physically, but most physically couldn't hook up the line and then bring the hose in and then fight the fire by themselves. No, right? well, and I, I found that out, yeah. right? It's like I'm a brand new, like, I'm off probation and I'm jogging on the beach trail here in San Clemente and I see a big loom up, a big column of smoke coming from the state park and I roll over there and uh, I just, like, run in. I'm one of the first people there and it's like, somebody's truck is on fire just parked in the state park. No one's trapped inside the vehicle or anything. It's like, I'm just kind of standing there like, well... I'm sort of, you know, I've been trained on all this stuff, yeah. but it's dependent on me having like not only the fire apparatus here, but also all my protective gear and yeah. all the boys to help back me up and do all exactly. the of their jobs that they need to do. But, you know, the, the, the other part of that is like, I showed up for that ride along. It's like, there is a locker room. Like there's a yeah. locker room. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, yeah. What kind of job has a locker room <laughs> right, you know, but right. with all the customary, like, shenanigans that go along with it and all the camaraderie and, and yeah. uh, frankly like all the, the, the fucking off and the shit that I missed from the Marine Corps and that's not to say and I, I don't want to give your listenership the impression that yeah, you're yeah. fucking off on a daily Just basis slap with each other around yeah but like we have fun doing the yeah. job that we do which I think frankly makes us better yeah. at doing the job we do but there's a, a cop and he's a, a pretty seasoned guy that will park outside the fire station they're like they're 
the entire north part of town is this guy's beat. But he parks there and he'll occasionally come inside and use the head. And we've slowly talked him into like, hey, man, come have dinner with us. You know, like, let's get to know you a little bit. Yeah. And like, I know he appreciates, even though most of the time he declines, he'll sit down and we'll just, we'll chew the breeze in between responding to emergencies. And uh, excuse me, chew the breeze, chew the fat. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And uh, he's a great guy, but we get to see, you know, his side of the job, which a lot of it is like, sitting in a patrol car by himself waiting to respond to the stuff that they respond to. Whereas ours is literally like, you know, if we're not training or prepping for the next emergency, we're hanging out with one another Mm -hmm. and we're, we're professionally developing ourselves. And, and again, truly, I think like the shared sense of camaraderie, the shared sense of purpose, even within our little station, it's, it's so critical to showing up on scene and it's again the concept of like like the stuff that the Marine Corps taught you, right? Like decentralized command, commander's intent, you know, operating uh, without direct supervision, mm-hmm. and just mm-hmm. knowing according to the SOPs that we've got, and then the audibles that we call that all these guys are firing on all cylinders when we show up is as a you know a supervisor the best possible feeling in the world. Yeah, sort of like that I, that mantra, like the most ready when everyone else is the least ready. Yeah. Sort of thing. Like yeah, yeah, yeah. you're always you're always on your game. You have to be. Yeah. Yeah. Can be. yeah. That's dude, I really appreciate you being so generous with your time. And I, I guess one question I have though, just for our listeners, is what how would we understand the role of a captain? Yes. Because I think for most of our listeners who have military background, the captain would be the company commander yep. or the section OIC. And outside of like direct combat, which maybe everything that you guys do in response to a call is sort of like direct combat, but like yep. more times than not, the, the, the commander has to maintain a certain level of separation. Um, because there's other aspects of the job and then, you know, the whole thing, like you just don't want to get too much in the weeds. Like you're not, for sure. you're not, a, you're not a, a squad leader. You're the company commander. Right. There's certain things you have to do in a certain level of, you have to be a little bit removed. Yeah. Is it the same for a fire or are you like on every call you're. No, you're to a certain degree. So we have a really flat rank structure. Yeah. Um, we, we all, I mean, frankly, unless you're like the probie, guys are calling each other. Names. Yeah, yeah. And, and to a certain extent, and I, I don't want to give away too many trade secrets or specific <laughs> Long Beach, but even the chief of the entire department is like a guy that I know on a first name basis. Um, and, and so I think that not only helps with camaraderie, but it helps flatten out that rank structure to promote independent decision making on scene in a, in a dynamic like really changeable and really hostile environment yeah. a lot of times. Um, and so it's my job. What we do is inherently unsafe. Um, and and I, I hate a lot of these entities and even the propensity of the fire service at large in a lot of ways to um, swing towards safety because um, in, in a lot of ways the fire service has migrated even in my short time in it toward a, a hey, we don't go in until we're, we're sure it's, it's safe for us. And it's like, well, it's too late. Then. Fuck that. Yeah. Absolutely not. Yeah, yeah. You know, and, and so our mission statement is to protect life, property, and the environment in that order. Nowhere does it provide for our own personal safety. And I find it inherent as my role as as the, the supervisor, because I, I really see myself as working for the guys that they're technically in my charge. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's inherent that we have a conversation beforehand of like, hey, there's risk involved. There's sacrifice involved. You need to understand that. Your family needs to understand that. You need to reevaluate it on a regular basis. 
because I'm going to ask you to do some, frankly, very dangerous stuff. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Probably the most dangerous of which is to stand out on the Southern California freeway uh, yeah, right. during rush hour traffic and, and deal with, you know, patients of potentially like an auto extrication. Yeah, yeah. Right? Um, but we do all sorts of dangerous stuff. We run into burning buildings. We do auto extrications, exposure to communicable disease. The list goes on, right? But, but I find that one of my main roles is making sure that these guys have a healthy relationship with understanding what it is um, that they potentially might be sacrificing for the people that we serve. Um, on scene of an actual incident, as I've already described, showing up in yeah. a car fire in my running shorts. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't, I frankly don't do a whole lot. My, you know, as they used to say in the Marine Corps, your TO weapon is no longer your M16, it's yeah. your radio. Right, right. My TO weapon is exactly the same on scene of a fire. It's my radio. Yeah, your ability to sort of yeah. direct the right people in the right place yep. at the right time. When yeah. I say these guys, I say, you know, universally for guys. And yes, yeah. These guys are the workhorses. They're doing the task level stuff that's intimately making a difference in potentially saving someone's life. I'm managing the scene. I'm trying to get the big picture. I'm coordinating with other unit commanders if it's it's a larger scene. Mm -hmm. Trying to get these guys essentially, you know, the resources that they need to accomplish yeah. the, the task that they need to get. get. Kind of like you're in the jump coc where you're not necessarily holding the hose, but you've got your tack board up so. and you're. When I have the good fortune of still like holding the hose or having okay a tool in hand or helping these guys throw a ladder. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm generally the last guy on the crew to do it. And a lot of the times, and so it's a really good indicator. If I am swinging a tool, that's a good indicator for me to put the tool down, pick my radio up and ask for more people. Mm, nice. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So four people from another company trying to accomplish the same task that I'm trying to accomplish on my own yeah. is, is generally a better solution, but it's my job to recognize that. Yeah. That's that's fascinating, dude. I will. I mean, this has been so. I mean, this has been a, just such a great conversation. I mean, what? I guess what's next for you? Yeah. Um, and do you have any advice for anybody who's thinking about doing public service? I, I do. So I think um, you know, I I encourage um, public service in all of its aspects. I think it's largely dependent on an individual's um, strengths yeah. and, frankly, their personal passion. Because I find if you're not if you're not going to be passionate about something, it's probably not going to generate enough interest for you to really intimately involve yourself to the point where you're going to learn enough about it to be a professional expert about it. Yeah. And you're probably not going to be willing to sacrifice um, what it is that ultimately needs to be sacrificed in terms of service. And I, I talk about that in terms of the fire service, in terms of, yeah, it's not safe, but... Man, if, if your call to service is to be an ER doctor, that's fucking awesome. Yeah. Go for it. If you're smart enough to do that, if you're capable enough, if you're dedicated enough, passionate enough, please do that. Our world needs you. Um, but at the same time, that's not without its inherent dangers as well. Yeah. yeah. The exposure to communicable disease, the sleepless nights, the intensity that it takes just to study and get to that point. Just to be in that kind of trauma. Yeah. You yeah, kept talking yeah. about filling the fishbowl up with marbles and <laughs> right. flows. Yeah. Yeah. And so um, you're exposing yourself to a whole lot of stuff that involves sacrifice. And just to go in with your eyes wide open in that, um, that regard. But specific to the fire service, uh, I, I genuinely encourage people to do it. I think it's a phenomenal transition um, from the military, the Marine Corps um, in particular for me. It was, it was a great transition and a great jumping off point. 
to a level of service that I never thought. Like I never as a kid, I wasn't the kid who's like, I know I want to be a firefighter when I grow up kind of thing. I just, I wasn't. Um, But at the same time, it's so professionally fulfilling. And I feel like so genuinely, and not all the time, but certainly some of the time, leaves our world a better place and helps people out individually and hopefully makes it a better place for our kids. Um, if, it, if there are specifics that you want to do, I'll give you my contact information and the listenership can get in touch with me or, or okay. with you through me. And I, you know, I'm happy. Like I've mentored plenty of military transitionees in the process Okay, of what it looks like. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We'll put your stuff in the show notes then for yeah. sure, man. Thank you for offering that. Yeah, up. yeah. But like, yeah, if you, like use your GI Bill, get, get your paramedic certification, especially if it's in Southern California, you're making yourself so marketable. Go through a private fire academy. Those are like the, the basic wickets. Yeah. And, and I mean, some of them are, are a pretty big deal, paramedic school in particular, but if you can do it, man, it's... And there's funding for that, for veterans? Well, the, yeah, so there okay. can be. And um, it, our municipality in specific gives you veterans preference points okay. towards passing the test. And it makes you a more competitive candidate. And I'm glad they do that. Do I wish they did more? Yes. Um, but additionally, like, utilize those benefits that are out there. And some you find about during Tap and Tampa, be a bulldog. Because some of those some of those benefits are not, they're, they're dependent on even the state or the municipality yeah. that you're looking. Um, they might be something that you've never heard about. So, you know, the networking with other vets um, and even programs like this, be a, be a bulldog, be tenacious. Ask the question. Yeah. Don't expect them to give you the answer. Well, because every unit has one transition officer who's assigned to it. And then you do your tap and tamp. And there's only so much information they can cram in. In five days. And it's like, how is this possibly going to be specific to a career that I, Nick, personally want when I get out of here? It can't possibly be specific enough. Right. So look regional. Look specific to the job that you want. And I guarantee there are benefits out there. But, yeah, the... uh, the vocational rehabilitation, the, um, the the GI Bill, specifically the post-9-11 GI Bill, is, is absolutely phenomenal. Yep. Utilize those resources. Awesome. Sure. Dude, thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much for your service, dude. This has been so great. No, it's my pleasure, brother. I hope people get something out of it. Yeah. Oh, dude, if nothing else... I got a ton of steaks, so yeah, I'm ready to rock now, dude. But thank you again. Do something for Dallas, and again, dude, thank you. I I can't say thank you enough, man. No, thank you. All right, man. Scuttlebutt is a production of the Marine Corps Association. I am Nick Wilson. That is Major Vic Rubel, U.S. Marine Corps retired. We have also heard the voices of or contributions from William Truding or Nancy Lichman, editors of Gazette and Leatherneck magazines, respectively. Opinions expressed in Scottlebutt are just that, opinions, and do not represent any official stance of the MCA.